0: It is my honor and privilege to invite you this morning to point your Bible to the book of 1 Peter, which uh, is where we will be spending our time together. We're working verse by verse through the letter of 1 Peter. And we have now entered chapter 3. So, 1 Peter chapter 3, if you didn't bring a Bible with you today or your Bible battery died, then I would ask you to uh, follow along with me in the Pew Bible that's uh, sitting in front of you. It's black and hardbacked, and you'll be on page 1015 of that Bible. We're going to be uh, in chapter 3, and uh, we're going to be reading at the beginning here uh, verse 1 down to 6, although I'm afraid we're only going to have time for about the first two verses, and um, let's, let's just read it and see what God does, okay? I'm, I'm excited. All right, verse 1, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, Be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let the adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. But this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, By submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children. If you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Let's pray. Father, I am under no misunderstanding. That what I'm about to do is above me. And I am wholly incapable of doing it. And so I ask you, by your grace and in your mercy, and for the sake of your gospel and your people, that you would send forth your word to accomplish that which you have sovereignly decided for it to accomplish in us. I ask That you would soften our hearts to be ready to receive your word. And that the enemy would have no effect in snatching away the seed of that word. But rather it would take root in our life to bear fruit for your beautiful name. Such that people would see us. And they would say, Jesus must be excellent. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So for the next three Sundays, Lord willing, we're going to unpack uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, an elect exile, and to be married. And this morning, we're going to see Peter's instructions to Christian wives toward their husbands who are not Christians. Next week, we're going to look at feminine beauty, the way God defines it. And in two weeks, if there's still anybody coming to this church, we're going to look at what it means to be a man in marriage, according to the Scripture, their responsibilities and their roles and all that. So we'll be in these verses for 35 or 45 minutes or so, and at the, time, at the end, we'll leave some time for prayer. This is a, a two-part sermon, and if you have your uh, program when you came in on the backside, you're welcome to follow along with me. This sermon is entitled, The Fearless Hope of Women of God. And this is the first part. Next week will be the second part. So look at your neighbor and say, I'm glad I came to church. Awesome. Even if that's not true. Because at the end, we'll leave time for repentance. Let's get to work. The the beginning of verse 1 in chapter 3, Peter uses this word, likewise. And before we get into the particulars of this passage, I I think I need to do a little bit of work in setup because... Passages like this one have so often been misconstrued and misunderstood. And part of that is, I'm going to own part of that, because preachers like me have done sloppy exegesis in passages like this, and bad preaching leads to bad application. Bad preaching leads to bad practice. So I'm going to own some of that. But part of the reason why this particular passage has been misunderstood is due to a fellow named Steve. He put a chapter division right here. Steve's dead now. He died in the 1200s. You can visit his grave in England. And if you do, kick it for me. My job is difficult enough in this passage, but then he makes it even more difficult by putting a chapter division where the word likewise is the first word used. And that makes you think. That what he's about to say in chapter 3 is unrelated to what Peter has already said. And if you've been listening and following with us in the book of 1 Peter, you know what he said before. He said, submit to the government, Christian elect exile, even the government you don't like, even the one that doesn't like you, even the one that's persecuting you for fun. And then he said, submit yourself to masters, even the ones that are mean to you. Chapter division, submit to your husbands. No, 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 no. No, this, what he's saying here, is not unrelated to what Peter said before. So, you have Steve to blame for this, okay? But just want you to know that what Peter is is addressing here, what he's saying here, is inextricably connected to what he has said before, namely... Submission as an elect exile, and namely, the gospel. Because if you read 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 and 2, without the gospel, you misunderstand it altogether. Peter is addressing Christians that he calls elect exiles of the dispersion. And as we learned at the first uh, first time we got together in this book, we learned that these, these were Christians, men and women, whom God saved. And because they were Christians, they got kicked out of their homeland. They got kicked out of their home countries. They got kicked out of their home families. And they were residing in an area of the world which is modern-day Turkey, as it turns out. So Peter very well could have said, elect refugees living in Turkey. And life as a refugee among the Turks is hard. The government doesn't want you. Your masters don't like you. You're persecuted. And some of you, Peter's saying, God saved you, and he hasn't yet saved your spouse. And so Peter is comforting them by telling them that God does these things and he's working all things for his glory and their good. And then he moves on and gives some specific instructions to women. In a specific case of these two verses is a woman who has become a Christian and her husband is not Christian submission by itself is difficult, but Christian submission within a marriage to an unsaved husband is even more difficult. But Peter is so pastoral. He's so caring. He's so, you're a refugee, you're in a land that's not your own, and he says, yeah, you don't have a people, but you are God's people. You don't have a purpose. But God gave you a purpose to proclaim his excellencies wherever you are. So, young lady, you're, you're a Christian, but your old man is not a Christian, so you can still have a purpose in that place, and you can serve the Lord in that area of your life to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus, and maybe God will save him. But before we get there, about how that works and how God is, is asking these women married to unsaved men, how God is, what God is doing there and what God means for the, her to do, before we get there, we need to, um, we need to do a little bit more setup in, in this passage. So the verse starts off by saying, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So there's a couple of things that we need to do uh, in order to build a right foundation for understanding marriage in general. So I want, I want to share with you two things. Two, two, I, I think they're the two most important things that we need to know as, as Christians about what the Bible says about marriage. There's two things that are very, very important about the way the Bible describes marriage. There's a whole lot of confusion about what marriage is and what it isn't. And so... Two things. The first thing uh, I want to share with you about what the Bible says about marriage is the Bible calls marriage a covenant. We learn this in Malachi chapter 2 verse 14. The Lord is rebuking bad husbands as he tends to do. And he says this to them, "The Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So marriage is a covenant, and that's important, because a covenant is not the same as a contract. They're different. I don't have the time this morning to explain all of the differences between a covenant and a contract, Uh, but if you're interested in the subject, Gary Chapman has written something on this book. Um, Matt, uh, Matt and Lauren Chandler wrote a book, in 2014, about this very subject. I know some of you have read that. Suffice it to say this. A contract is an agreement between two parties where the conditions are laid out for transactions benefiting each. And so long as the conditions of the contract are met, the contract is valid. But once one party in the contract breaks their terms of agreement, the other party is therefore released and relinquished from said contract. You're all familiar with contracts because you you either have, you pay rent and you have a lease, which is a contract, or you pay a mortgage, which is a contract between you and the bank. So as long as the agreement is, you can live in that place so long as you continue to pay your rent, pay your mortgage. But the moment you stop paying your mortgage or your rent, you've broken your end of the deal and you're going to get kicked out. That's how contracts work. A covenant is not like a contract. A covenant is very different in in that. A covenant is not built on if you do this, then I will do this sort of language. Instead, both parties in a covenant agree to uphold the covenant regardless of the behavior of the other person. One person violates the terms of the agreement, but the covenant remains valid because it doesn't factor in. Jesus called his death on the cross the institution of a new covenant. Which was between God and his people. And see, this is, this is he, he's our example. God remains faithful to the covenant with you whether or not you remain faithful to the covenant you've made with him. And marriage is a covenant. We see this in the language we use at weddings who's went to a wedding this summer in the wedding did they not use covenant language like till death do us part like in sickness or in health that's covenantal language What they're saying is that I'm promising my faithfulness to you, to the covenant of this marriage, and it's not conditioned on or dependent upon your faithfulness to it. Matt Chandler illustrates this by showing how absurd it would sound if we introduced contract language in wedding vows. Imagine saying to your spouse, I promise to be faithful to you so long as you cook for me five nights a week. And she says, well, I promise to be faithful to you and cook for you five nights a week as long as you keep me rolling in a luxury SUV. Well, I'll keep you rolling in a luxury SUV so long as we have sex three times a week. And they go back and forth. And you would be like, this doesn't work. This does not work at all. This is contract language, not covenant language. Because marriage is not a contract. Therefore, husbands and wives are faithful to a marriage regardless of their spouse's faithfulness. So we can't begin treating one another like, if you're going to be like that, then I'm going to be like this. And if you're going to say this, then I'm going to say that. So long as you're going to be like that, then I'm going to withhold from you here. That's contract behavior. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is a covenant because of what marriage is meant to demonstrate, which is the second thing the Bible says about marriage. Marriage is meant to demonstrate the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Marriage is meant to demonstrate the glory of God in the gospel. It is a parable of Christ and the church. Marriage is meant to be a a real-life illustration of of what Jesus did for the church. In Ephesians 5, Paul calls marriage a profound mystery because of this. I did a couple of sermons on that subject a couple of years ago. They're still on the website if if you're interested. But what this means is that a Christian's commitment to his or her spouse should not be conditioned upon their faithfulness to them any more than Jesus' commitment to be faithful to you is conditioned upon your faithfulness to Him. Jesus gave himself up for us, so we give ourselves up for our spouse. Jesus set aside divine privilege in order to serve us, so we set aside privilege in order to serve him or her. Dr. Edmund Clowney writes rightly, The Christian who follows Jesus does not grasp for privilege. He or she is already privileged beyond imagination. The Christian seeks rather opportunities to imitate Christ in willing subjection to service. That's a pretty good definition of marriage. So God made no conditions upon your election. He saved you despite you. And when we are unfaithful to him now, he doesn't take back the cross. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't withhold forgiveness from us. He doesn't move into contract behavior. He continues to be faithful. He continues to love us. He continues to pursue us when we run. And he continues to forgive us when we return. And that's how we ought to act in marriage. So, This is going to sound strange to modern ears. I'm glad you're sitting down. But marriage, if it's true that marriage is about the gospel, and if it's true that marriage is a covenant, then it's also true that marriage is not about personal happiness or personal fulfillment or, dare I say, even love. Turns out, Sir Paul McCartney was wrong. All you need is more than just love. Love is good, it is a blessing of God in your marriage. But marriage needs more than love. It's like imagine you have a whole bunch of wet firewood and a little bit of lighter fluid. You can spread the lighter fluid on the wet wood and so long as you put a spark to it, there's going to be a big flame right until the moment when you run out of lighter fluid. Your marriage may begin in love, but love will not sustain it. There's got to be something more. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this, it is not your love that sustains the marriage, but the marriage that sustains your love. Marriage is much bigger than sharing a bed with someone, and the success of a healthy marriage depends upon the understanding that this is a contract, a covenant rather, meant to demonstrate the glory of God in the gospel. On Friday, I'm happy to say Sarah and I celebrated 16 years of marriage. And uh, it's, it's been 16 years of happiness by God's grace. And if, if the Lord saw to it to end right now and took her home, 16 years with her would be enough for two more lifetimes. But you know what? Even if God hadn't granted me 16 years of happiness and fulfillment, our marriage would still be valid. Because our covenant is not built upon our love or our commitment to one another. It's built upon the gospel. You sure you're happy that you came to church today? Unmarried people are like, I'm never getting married! I know what Paul meant when he said, the gift of singleness. All right, I think once we've understood this is a covenant meant to demonstrate the glory of God in the gospel, I think once you have that in your mind, now let's turn our attention to 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, and read with the apostle. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives when they see you respectful and pure conduct. Peter envisions this scenario, that God saves an un- a married woman and her husband is not yet a Christian. And this is a difficult situation for her because in those days, a woman was meant to follow the religion of her husband. So this puts her in a difficult situation, in a hard predicament And this is important, friends, because you need to understand these, past, this, these, two, these two verses are very important for us because uh, you may not be a woman in a marriage without a, a, a Christian husband, right? But it does tell us something about what marriage is. And also, sisters, you may have a friend down the road who may be in this situation. And by knowing what the Bible says about it, you're better equipped to serve her. So Peter says this to her. Should I desert him or should I convert him? Should I desert him because he's... This isn't a valid marriage. He's not leading me spiritually. He's not washing me with the water of the word like Ephesians 5 says. He's not being a Christian leader in my home. Does that mean my marriage is invalid? And Peter says, don't desert him. Convert him. Stay. Stay. And what Peter says here in 1 Peter 3 is consistent with the rest of Scripture. I'll read to you 1 Corinthians 7. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consists, con, consists, consents to live with her, he should not, she should not divorce him. So God saves a woman and her husband is not a believer and he wants to stick around. She's not supposed to divorce him. Then he goes on to say, for, you, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? He says, stick around. Don't desert him. Convert him. And here's how she is to convert him in verse 1 and 2, by respectful and pure conduct. He says, her conduct is what will win her man's heart to Jesus, not her words. Now, I don't take this to mean that she doesn't talk to him, or I don't take this to mean that she doesn't share the gospel with him. I take this to mean few men are nagged into loving Jesus. That's how I read that passage. And so he's saying, don't don't nag him. Let him see your respectful and pure conduct. That's a more powerful witness than nagging. So, maybe hot gluing Bible verses on the windshield of his truck every day might not be the most effective gospel witness. With all, like hiding his cigar box until he reads the book of Romans might not be an effective way of re- winning into Jesus. Withholding from him in the bedroom might not work. He says, love him, be respectful, be pure. Let your conduct do the talking. To be pure just means to be holy and innocent. He's just saying, Peter's just saying, Christian, sister Christian, love the Lord, serve him to the glory of God, submit to him and forgive him and be his friend and pray with him and go with him on dates. He's your husband. Live out the gospel because how do you know by so doing you won't save his soul? And this is a tough ask. because she has to submit to a man who is not leading her spiritually. And for this, she's going to need strength, a supernatural form of strength and a strength that is outside of herself. Where is she going to find this strength? I think the answer to that is in verse 5 and 6. He says this, Peter points to uh, some holy women who were able to honor God and submit to her husbands. And they did it, according to verse 5, because they hoped in God. Their hope was not in their husband. Her hope was not even in herself. She's not hoping that her husband will come to Jesus and live, uh, live uh, as he should and lead her well. He's not, she's not even hoping in her ability to win him. Because you understand, nobody really wins a soul. To G- G- God does the saving, we do the serving. Her hope is in God, in the life, the death, the resurrection, the assurance of Jesus. And this hope is, is far more powerful than we might think. Because what, look, what, look what Peter says this does for her in verse 6. She does not fear anything that is frightening. She's fearless. It reminds me of something about the Proverbs 31 woman. I think it's verse 25. It says, Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. So, this is not a woman who, in submission, is silent and mousy and timid. She's confident and and fears nothing because she hopes in God. She's fearless. It seems backwards to us. But true strength is demonstrated in submission. We see this in the life of Jesus. For if any man lived who was stronger, who would he be stronger than Jesus? And yet Jesus lived his entire life in submission to his Father. So, Let's not ever think that submission means weakness. It's quite the opposite, actually. Don't you find that people who simply cannot be under authority are the most fearful people of all? They're afraid of the future, and so they do whatever they can to manipulate others and put them under their control because they fear the future. They fear not being in control. Their hope is not in God. Their hope is in themselves, and they refuse to submit to another. It's a distrust in the sovereignty of God. And by submitting, we're showing true strength and confidence and fearlessness, just like Jesus showed. It's not weakness, it's trust, it's fearlessness. I want to end our time together. It's a little shorter sermon, but I want to end our time together by talking uh, a little bit about what submission is and what submission isn't. And I'm just doing this because they're, in our day, uh, maybe, see, maybe more than other days, I'm not, I'm not sure, but it seems like in our day, there's a whole lot of misunderstanding about the word submission. And so, what I want to do is just give you five different things about what. Submission is we come into a marriage relationship with a preconception of what roles look like, what submission looks like, and some of those preconceptions, regrettably, are informed more by our culture, more by the abuses that we're familiar with, than by the scriptures. So I'm going to give you five things about what submission is not. The Bible is very clear that a wife is to submit to her husband But this is not what this means. Number one, submission is not to all men. The Bible is very clear on this. Look at verse one. She is to submit to her own husband. A wife submitting to her husband is not, the Bible does not say that a woman is to submit to men, but to her husband. A woman is not less than a man, and she's not asked to submit to all men, but to the one she married. Anyone who says that the Bible is demeaning towards women has never read the Bible faithfully. When you read the Scriptures, you find a God giving more dignity to a woman than any religion or non-religion would dare give. You find a God giving more freedom to women than any religion or non-religion would dare offer her. Submission is not to men, but to husbands, her husband. Number two, submission is not agreeing with everything he says. I mean, clearly that can't be the case because Peter envisions a situation where a woman is a Christian and the man is not. Clearly, she disagrees with him on the things that matter most. So it can't be that she agrees. When you get married, ladies, it's not that you leave your opinions at the door. That's not what submission is. The whole point of this passage is that there is a woman and she disagrees with her. And the whole point is, how do you disagree with your husband and do it respectfully and do it in pureness? So it's not, you're not a doormat. Number three. She's not to put her husband before Jesus. That's not what submission is. Submission is not putting her husband before Jesus. So, yes, she is to submit to him, but if he asks her to do anything that is sinful or violates her conscience in any way, she is to obey her master first, not her husband. I want that to be clear. The husband is the head of the home, but he is not the ultimate head of the home. Jesus is the ultimate head of the home. He's an underling. And and, and a wife's submission is first to her father in heaven and then to her husband. So if he's hurting her or causing her to do something sinful, something to violate her conscience, she must appeal to her higher authority. If he's hurting her physically or hurting her her children, then she is to get out. Number four, submission is not competency-based. A wife is not asked to submit to her husband because women are less competent than men. That's not what submission is. I could give you a few Scripture verses for this or I could just invite you to my home for a few hours and you'll realize that headship is not something that is earned through proficiency. My wife is far more competent and most things in our life than I am. And her submission to me is not competency-based. If I were to pack my family for vacation, we'd end up on that show, I Shouldn't Be Alive. You understand? (laughs) I guarantee it. She's far more competent. So it can't be competency-based. And, and listen, if you, if you take issue with anything that I'm saying here, here's what I would ask. I would ask you to just hang around this church for a little while. And you watch, as I have, the women of this church, as they dance in this kind of relationship with their husbands. And you tell me whether or not who's the better dancer here. He might be leading, but she's following, and her better dancing makes him look like he's a better dancer. Do you understand what I'm saying? Men, come on, let's be honest. Who's more competent in this? I've watched you. I know who's more competent. In that relationship it's not competency-based you lead and you lead well and you lead selflessly and a godly woman following you will make you a better leader number five last thing submission does not mean that she is spiritually dependent on him 100% he's supposed to be the spiritual leader in the home we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks but her spiritual strength comes from Jesus and not her husband There are uh, plenty of situations where the wife is more spiritually mature than the husband. But she can still submit to him, love him, serve him, be faithful to him, respect him, and watch him grow in the faith. But she's not spiritually dependent on him submission means lovingly honoring your husband and affirming his headship and helping him to grow in the faith perhaps it's just the nature of our culture but I've noticed that God generally saves the w- wife first so, so so maybe some of you can relate to this but your submission to your husband is not because he's your savior He's your husband. You submit to him, love him, defer to his headship, and help him to grow in the faith. In conclusion, marriage is a God-given covenant relationship through which God demonstrates the gloriousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a gift he gives to many, but not all. And when husbands do what God has called them to do and wives do what God has called them to do, it glorifies his name. It's not easy. Navigating the most intimate of relationships is not easy. It's full of pain. I've felt some of your pain. I've prayed with you, cried with you, as you try to work on this. So the last thing I want to say is, as your pastor, I want you to know my office is always open. If you just need help. Sarah and I are not perfect. She's closer than I am. But by God's grace, I think we can help. And if you need help, if you're struggling in your marriage, trying to work it out, utilize your pastor, your pastor's God has given you Sarah and I and Brett and Jane as a resource. There is no shame. Cornerstone, listen to me. There's no shame in living in a sucky marriage. We're sinners, saved by grace, and we bump heads. Father, I ask you to appropriate your word as you have sent it this morning. I thank you. You hear us. You always hear us. And for the hundreds of times I've prayed for the marriages in this church, I thank you for the grace that you've sent every single time I've prayed. Would you make us a people committed to the covenant of marriage and for the glory of your name?